Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. In this episode, we're diving into an essential look at soil, from how food and fiber quality is directly connected to soil health, to how billions of microbes are working hard, building soil, storing carbon, and so much more. I'm Jess Daniels, and I'm sharing a unique episode with you, because it's actually not an interview like we typically feature on the podcast, but rather it's a special edition episode. It's an edit of a talk by Dr. Christine Jones. Dr. Christine Jones is an internationally renowned and highly respected ground cover and soils ecologist. She has a wealth of experience working with innovative landholders to implement regenerative land management techniques that enhance biodiversity, increase biological activity, sequester carbon, activate soil nutrient cycles, restore water balance, improve productivity, and create new topsoil. Christine has organized and participated in workshops and field days, seminars, and conferences throughout Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Canada, Central America, and the USA, and has a strong publication and presentation record. Christine is a member of Arizona State University's Carbon Nation team and sits on the advisory board of the Carbon Underground. These organizations recognize that farming and grazing practices designed to improve levels of soil biological activity through the active management of diverse year-long green ground cover are key to the restoration of soil function, clean water, and nutrient-dense food. When Christine was traveling across the western U.S. in the summer of 2019, she shared two workshops with the Northern California Fibershed community and so many of us were blown away by what we learned and the way she put this information together that we wanted to bring you an abbreviated and condensed version of these key learnings. And we're able to do that with this podcast episode thanks to John Perulis at Bright Path Video in Marin County, who recorded this audio and provided some of the initial editing. In this episode, you'll hear how modern agriculture has tried to replicate and replace complex biological systems yet has been focusing on some of the wrong components. We'll learn how food quality and nutrition and crop productivity and soil carbon levels are connected to a vast yet invisible system of microbial life, and how increasing plant diversity and well-managed animal grazing supports microbes to build soil, sequester carbon, and so much more. This is a pretty science-rich episode, and I encourage you to pause when needed and rewind to repeat key points and definitely check out the show notes for more resources on specific processes and scientific research that's referenced here. So without further ado, here is Dr. Christine Jones. My background is actually in wool production. My first degree, I have a degree in textile technology and worked in um, with big wool processes in Australia in looking at... Well, my, my project was looking at the coefficient of variation of diameter of a wool fibre um, because, as you would know, that if you're involved in the processing, like commercial processing, you know, in the big mills, that you don't want wool fibres breaking during processing because then they flip out and make things feel really prickly. And, and so you want everything to twist beautifully into a nice... Yarn, so for that very fine worsted 
materials that are used for like Italian men's suits where you'd pay, you know, $30,000 or $50,000 or something for a suit. You don't want to feel that and detect that it's got prickly, any kind of prickly wool in it. So, yeah, so that was my project. And, and that's what got me really interested in, or well, why does the diameter vary over the year or why does tensile strength vary? And realising, well, obviously it's got something to do with what they eat and just about everything has to do with what animals eat or we eat, which is the first thing I'm going to be talking about is what we eat. And then, well, that's got something to do with the way the pasture grows. It's obviously got something to do with the soil and how is soil quality affecting pasture quality, affecting wool quality, affecting the processing quality, affecting the way that a garment falls when you make it from that kind of fibre. So then I did a PhD in soil biochemistry, which doesn't seem to have very much to do with the wool industry, you wouldn't think, uh, except that it is all connected. So the first thing I do want to talk about today is joining the dots, and in particular talking about our food production, because that is all linked to the soil, and we are all linked through food. And I feel that if there is going to be change globally, it will probably be through the food industry, through people's interest in food, because of how that is actually linked to human health. Most people in the agricultural business are about producing food and there's something fundamentally wrong with our food production system because the nutritional value of today's food is far lower than it's ever been in any point in history. And in fact, if you consider the Native American people that would have lived on this land hundreds of years ago, um, their diet was very, very rich and very uh, high in nutrients, and those people were incredibly healthy compared to the Europeans that now live here today. With all the technology that we have at our disposal, we've managed to uh, dramatically lower the nutrient content of the food that we're consuming. Um, so you'd need to eat twice as much meat, three times as, many, uh, as much fruit, and four to five times as many vegetables just to get the same amount of nutrients that would have been available in those foods back in 1940. And by 1940, the nutritional value of our food had already declined significantly. In the early 1900s in the United States, you had people like William Albrecht talking about the fact that the nutritional content of food in, you know, in around 1910, something like that, was significantly less than it was in 1850. Um, and he was warning the American public at that point that you know you're all this is everything's going to crash here people are going to die because of lack of nutrients in their food so that was well before 1940 we know that this is how much has declined since 1940 so this is since 1940 this is well after William Albrecht was making those statements about about this issue so if we look in that 50-year period the post-war period from 1940 to 1991 27 different kinds of vegetables. So this is a very comprehensive study. It's the most comprehensive one that I've seen in the world. It's all been published in an internationally recognised journal, the Journal of Nutrition and Health. Copper declined by 76% in that 50-year period. And you might say, well, does that really matter? We've got less copper in our food, so what? Do we need to have copper? Well, yes, you do, because every single biochemical reaction that takes place in your body when you take... And if you look at any biological process where a molecule is transformed from one kind to another, it requires an enzyme. It doesn't matter what living system it is, whether it's in the soil, whether it's in a plant, in an animal or a human, 
you can't get a change in the molecular structure of something unless there's an enzyme there to change it. So, you know, if you're looking at the production of hormones in our body or the production of, you know, antibodies to some kind of a pathogen or the things that we need for our immune system to function correctly, they need enzymes and every enzyme requires a catalyst. An enzyme cannot function without a catalyst and in our bodies those catalysts are metals like copper, zinc, selenium, those kinds of things. And so that if copper has declined by 76%, it means that a lot of metabolic reactions that would normally take place, particularly those related to our immune function, just cannot proceed. That even if the enzyme is produced, it cannot function if there's no catalyst there. So it is very significant that we have less copper in our diet. It's one of the most important catalysts for enzyme function. Calcium has declined by, by nearly 50%. You know that's important for the health of your bones and many other things as well. Iron's declined by nearly 30%. You need iron for formation of haemoglobin to carry oxygen. If you're low in iron, you're going to be tired. And how many people these days complain of being tired and not having enough energy? Magnesium is involved in about 300 different biochemical reactions in the body and there's, we've got like 25% less. And so it goes. And these reductions in, uh, in vegetables, um, this same author also found reductions in dairy products, in fruit and in meat, so that it's all related to the soil. So it's not surprising that we wouldn't see the same depletion in meat because the animals are eating either pasture or grain that's grown from the same kind of soil that our vegetables are grown from. So copper, calcium, iron, magnesium, potassium, all the same things decline. So if iron declined by 54% over that 50-year period, what that means is if you took the same breed of animal, like, say, a a Hereford steer of the same age, so let's say it was 18 months old, it was grown in the same paddock on the same soil type and you took the same cut of meat. Everything was the same and the same portion size. That portion of meat from 1940 to 1991 would have half of the amount of iron in it. So you could eat the same amount of meat as you ate back in 1940 but you're only getting half the amount of iron because we're animals. So that means that everything in our bodies will... Like, look at our bones. How many people suffer from osteoporosis now? So they've got far less calcium and phosphorus and all the things that... Elements that bones would... People have weak bones, right? And weak muscles. I mean, when you look at the strength of, say, hunter-gatherer-type people, Indigenous people, how strong they were, like, 200 years ago. How, in Australia, they say that Australian Aborigines could run faster than even the fastest runner can today on the diets that they were on. Australian Aborigines had access to 5,000 different food types, like just an incredibly varied, rich diet from incredibly healthy soils, which would have been the same for Native Americans living here in California 300, 400 years ago or whenever. I'm not sure. I'm, I have to confess I don't know what the date was. How can it be that we're using all these high-analysis fertilisers these days and making plants grow like crazy and we're not getting any nutrients in our food. So the official explanation for why our fruits and vegetables and things don't have the nutrients in them is that is the dilution effect. In other words, we've, you know, we're putting so much fertiliser on plants that they're growing at twice the rate that they used to, etc., etc., and therefore they've got half the amount of nutrients. That's sort of the way that story goes. But we actually don't see that in practice in uh, like the blueberries that we've just been talking about. If it's high yielding crops and it's grown in biologically active soil, we actually don't see a decline in nutrient density. So if you're growing your own vegetables at home or you're growing them in 
even commercially in a way using compost and things like that that's supporting biological diversity in the soil, you will not see that nutrient decline, even though you can have very abundant growth. I'm not sure what it's like here in Australia in summertime when we're, maybe it's too hot and dry here, but when we grow tomatoes and zucchinis and cucumbers and those kinds of things in the, in the backyard in summertime, they just go crazy. You, you produce far more than you could ever possibly eat. The flavour is just delightful. You know, you can eat raw zucchinis and cucumbers just picked out of the garden and eaten are so incredibly sweet. So there's no nutrient decline in that food that you're growing yourself if you're growing it in soil where you're using compost or plant diversity or something else to increase the life in your soil. So it's got nothing to do really with dilution. It's also got nothing to do with soil depletion because if we go out and measure our soils and do a total test, not what's called an available test. So the plant availability tests that labs tend to use are as a basis for a fertiliser recommendation. So a lab will test your soil using a test that will say, oh, you need some nitrogen, you need some phosphorus, and we can sell you this or we can link you to someone who can sell you this. So it's all designed to tell you that you need to apply those things and um, there's a whole industry around that, around applying fertilisers. So that the problem actually is that plants can no longer require the minerals and the trace elements that they need from the soil. So why do you think that might be? If you consider now what we would see here in California, for example, in uh, let's look at broadacre. Uh, you probably don't use that term, do you? Broadacre, when we say broadacre, we mean like large-scale even organic farms. I've seen organic farms that cover several hundred acres and they will be uh, just a field of kale or a field of lettuces or a field of just all one thing. And, and even though it's organic, you actually will have the same issues with low nutrient density in those foods as you would in a commercially grown food. Why do you think that is? So if we had a diverse plant community, a sunflower with a deep taproot can get something that a lettuce with a really shallow, more fibrous root system can't get. And if they were growing side by side, they would actually swap things because the lettuce can create an environment around its roots that can get some things that a sunflower can't get with a taproot and they would be connected. Do you know what they would be connected with? Fungi, yeah. So they're going to be connected with fungi, which are like little fine filaments. Some we can see and most of them we can't see with the naked eye and they would actually connect those two plants and that's what we call a common mycorrhizal network. They'll mostly be mycorrhizal fungi and the, the fungal hyphae will go right inside those roots and then right inside those roots and they will trade nutrients, trace elements and water and keep each other alive. So whether a lettuce and a sunflower actually have that kind of relationship, I'm not exactly sure. But if we had 20 different kinds of things all growing in together, they would certainly have that relationship. And in the case of the blueberries, they are certainly going to have that relationship with the, uh, with the grasses. If we actually look even in a... Even in a cornfield, say, for example, where people are putting on lots of fertiliser, 85 to 90% of that fertiliser that's put onto that field has to actually be changed by microbes. So microbes have to transform it into a plant-available form before the plant can use it. So even applied fertilisers have to go through this microbial pathway. And what that means is that if we're looking in our commercial production systems, like be they grain or vegetables or even um, tree nuts that you're either going to have a microbial system there or you're going to have to use fertiliser because one way or the other, the plants are going to starve to death if they don't get the essential 
elements that they need. And unfortunately, in most commercial production systems, we've gone down the, we've decided to use the fertiliser. So people will use fertilisers and not use uh, these microbial pathways. So our, today's soils are not deficient in minerals, they're actually deficient in microbes. So what we have to look at then is, well, how do we get more microbes? How do we get more biological activity? We're not going to get that through adding them. Uh, we're going to get them through creating the conditions where they can thrive. And in actual fact, when we look at the soil microbiome, these are some fungal spores in soil. It's a very, very diverse and extraordinary world. Uh, it's a little bit like investigating a coral reef, uh, except that we can see the things that are going on in coral reefs. Um, when we start looking at soil under a microscope, it's a really very beautiful world and very diverse, and it's something that we certainly have not paid enough attention to in the past. But last year there was a survey was done of life on Earth and measuring that life, it was a census of life on Earth measured in carbon-based life forms. So we're all made of carbon, all living things, the trees, the grasses, the plants, the animals, we're all carbon-based. And the scientists estimated there was 550 gigatons of carbon-based life forms on Earth and a gigaton is a billion tonnes, so this is a lot. And 450 of that 550 gigatons was in the form of plants, which is not really surprising because, you know, when you look around you, like just looking out, um, out the window or out the door, you see all that ground cover is plants and the trees. And, I mean, even the fences are made of wood, which was once a plant. Um, so there's a lot of plant carbon around us on this planet. That was not surprising, that 450 of the 550 gigatons of life on this world was, in this world was actually in the form of plants. But what was surprising was what made up the other 100 gigatons. So this is the weight of life on Earth. And what the scientists found was that 93% of that other 100 gigatons was in things we cannot see. So when we think of life on Earth, we don't think so much about the things we can't see. So this is the weight of protists, archaea, fungi and bacteria actually comprise 93% of that other 100 gigatons. So forget about the plants and now look at the... These are the other major life forms besides plants. We don't even register on this. Humans don't even get a look in on here. Protists, archaea, fungi and look at bacteria, 70 gigatons of that 100 gigatons of other life forms is in the form of bacteria that we cannot see with the naked eye. In fact, the things that we can see, um, like the birds out there, well, I can hear them, I can't see them, um, but things that we think of, you know, you look into the sky, you see the birds, you think about fish in the water, you think about the insects, um, mollusks are things like slugs and snails, and there's also a lot of mollusks in the ocean, and think how much of the surface of the planet is covered by ocean. It's something like 70%. And it's just absolutely teeming with life. So mollusks in the ocean would be things like oysters and clams and uh, pippies and those kinds of things, mussels. They're all in that mollusk family. Nematodes are your, um, your worms. or No, actually, they're not worms, are they? Your earthworms are annelids, I think. They come in that. So annelids are in there as well. Uh, and then there's the animals, like our domestic animals and our livestock and then humans. And collectively, all the things that we normally think of as life, the fish, the birds, the insects, the animals, and us, make up 7% of life on Earth. And humans are only a tiny part of that. In the final analysis, we comprise 0.01% 
of the biomass of life on Earth. So we have certainly punched above our weight, haven't we, in terms of the planetary changes that have come about, the changes in ecosystem function, the extraordinary, in most cases, degradation that has actually been brought about by humans and we only comprise 0.01% of the biomass of life on Earth. So maybe we need to figure out how to get the other 99.9% to work with us because if we have caused massive degradation, we can certainly turn that around and um, we have the power, we have the knowledge and if we work with the major life forms means we actually have to start working with the microbes. Um, I'm going to talk about some of the things that microbes can do. And what I'm talking about, when I'm showing you these numbers here, that's by weight. This is the weight of these things, not by number. So when we actually talk about number, it's even more staggering because one teaspoon of healthy soil contains more microbes than there are humans on the planet. This makes us feel a bit insignificant. And then if we look at more uh, microbially rich environments like the rumen of a cow or the rumen of a sheep or a goat, one drop of rumen fluid contains 10,000 more microbes than there are humans on the earth. If someone is telling you that they don't think sheep or goats are very significant animals, you can say, well, you know what, one drop of rumen fluid from my goat or one drop of rumen fluid from my sheep has got 10,000 times more microbes than there are humans. Rumen fluid. Well, a ruminant, the first thing that happens when a ruminant consumes um, grass or other kind of forage is it goes into this great big fermentation vat, which is called the rumen, which is why it's called a ruminant. So sheep, cattle, goats... Many forms of antelope. Yeah, they have... Well, people say they have four stomachs, but their first stomach is actually a fermentation vat. And the rumen is full of microbes that are... So that no mammals can digest cellulose. We can't digest cellulose, and ruminants can't digest cellulose either. But they have a fermentation vat that all this, the cellulose is... Grass and whatever other forages they're eating are made of cellulose... It's the most common compound on the face of the earth, actually, which is not surprising if plants comprise 450 of the 550 gigatons and most most plant material is cellulose. Then ruminants are able to grow from eating grass, but they can't digest grass. So the grass goes into the rumen and the microbes in the rumen digest the grass using an enzyme. Remember I talked about enzymes and that enzyme is called cellulase and it breaks cellulose down into smaller components. One of those are short-chain fatty acids that the animal ingests for growth. And the animal also eats the microbes. So it gets microbial protein from digesting the microbes that are breaking down the cellulose. So it's a symbiotic relationship between a large animal and all the microbes that live in its rumen. It's a very important symbiotic relationship. And we call them ruminants because the first part of their stomach, if you like, is this big vat that's a fermentation vat. And because it's it's, that's very important that it's fermentation because in the gut of an earthworm they are also undertaking fermentation and that's why the material that comes from an earthworm, whether you want to call it vermicast or vermicompost, I call it vermicast because what actually comes out of an earthworm is vermicast. Whether it then becomes vermicompost depends on what else you're mixing it with but their excreta is actually vermicast. So vermicast is incredibly rich microbially um, because it's just come through a fermentation pathway. So the guts of an earthworm, if you like, incredibly microbially rich. I don't know if you took like an equivalent of one drop of an earthworm's gut, how many microbes would be in that, but it would be something like this. Certainly more microbes in, a, in what you could safely say that the, 
I would stake my reputation on the fact that the number of microbes in the gut of one earthworm would be far more than the number of people there are on the planet. Easily. So there are these kinds of environments that are extraordinarily microbially rich and that's how it should be around the roots of a plant too. So that's what we're getting to is, you know, where are all these microbes and what are they doing? So the overall theme, I suppose, of that introductory part of my talk is that all plants and animals, including us, of course, are embedded in a microbial world. We are carrying, not only do we have microbes on our skin, but we have a microbiome around us that we carry with us everywhere we go. So if you went away on vacation, for example, and you went to a new place, a little cottage in the woods or something, or a little place near the seaside that you had never been before, when you first walk in there, it feels quite strange, and that's, well, you haven't been there before, so there's a familiarity thing there too. And then the next day you go, it feels more familiar. And then the third day you go there, it feels even more familiar. Well, a lot of that is obviously to do with the fact that um, you've been there before, you've seen it all before, and it starts to feel more comfortable. But the other thing, reason that it feels more familiar is you have established your microbiome there. And when you walk in through the door, your microbes that you've carried in with you greet the microbes that are already there or the ones that are already there greet your microbes and they all say, oh, hi, you're back. And you don't realise that's going on, but you actually feel that. So if you go somewhere like into a hospital to visit some, a friend or a relative that's in hospital and it's all sterile, I hate the feel of hospitals. There's just something about it. It's like, oh, it makes you cringe. And even if you go in there every day, you go in there every day for three days in a row and it still doesn't really feel comfortable, right? Or you go in there for weeks on end and it still doesn't really feel comfortable because you're not able to establish your microbiome there because it keeps getting sterilised all the time. And so if you were talking about like a grazed landscape and you, you're growing forages for animals, you really need to think about the way you manage those so that you do have lots of young actively growing roots and root tips. So if you had a grassland, for example, that you just shut away and you didn't have any animal impact and you thought that you were doing something good for the soil by not allowing animals to go in there, you're not doing anything good for the soil because plants like grasses need to be grazed. It's very important. Okay, so we are all embedded in this microbial world and it's a very, very intelligent microbial world. Much smarter than us, probably. Looking at something about even in the days when there was lots of bears and where the salmon stream and the bears were pulling salmon out and then they go and take them up into the forest and eat them or they defecate in the forest or whatever bears do in the forest. Like they're actually transferring nutrients from the stream out into the forest, you know, by their activities and the birds will do the same thing, like birds that eat the fish will often go and defecate somewhere else and spread nutrients around. There was a river in South Africa that humans in their wisdom decided to divert the entire river for irrigation. It was a river that went out to sea and they are going, oh, look, all that fresh water, it's just going, it's wasted. It's all just going out to sea and it's wasted. Why don't we divert the river, turn the whole thing into one big irrigation system? And when that water stopped flowing down that river, the entire area died because of the transfer of nutrients that you get from the birds and the insects and all those kinds of things you're talking about. We need everything in an ecosystem for it to function effectively. So it's a really, really good point. Um, we forget about the microbes too, because we think about the things like the trees and the birds and the insects that we can see, but there's this microbial world that we can't see, and we have really just ignored it until recently. 
now that we've seen that the wheels are falling off everything, I was like, oh, maybe my microbes are important because, you know, we are embedded in this microbial world and we have a microbial world embedded within us as well. This is actually a very good thing because microbes are capable of performing all kinds of amazing tasks that we can't do. And they behave collectively. Even though if we took a bacteria, for example, it's just a single cell. You think, how could one little tiny single cell, it's so small that we can't even see it, um, how could they have the impact that they do? Well, they have the impact that they do by behaving as multicellular organisms by communicating with each other and, um, and behaving collectively. And I guess that's what we as humans need to figure out how to do too. If we want to have major, major change, if we want to have major impact, we have to figure out how to all operate collectively and we could probably learn a lot from the way microbes do this because you would think the microbes aren't as clever as us because they can't see and they can't speak to each other, they can't hear and yet they can communicate extremely well. Maybe it's an advantage if you can't see and speak or hear that maybe you might... And theoretically, they don't have any brains either. So how come they're so well organised? Um, well, they, actually, they use a system or a process that we call quorum sensing. So in human society, a quorum is actually the um, minimum number of members of an organisation that have to be present in order for that organisation to make a decision. So you could have some microbes in your gut that can produce vitamins, but not enough for there to be a quorum. And if they don't reach a quorum, once they actually reach a quorum, they will all simultaneously change their genetic... They will switch on genes, let me put it that way. They, they will have genes... Let's say vitamin B, one of the B vitamins. We'll pick one B vitamin and we'll say there's a certain kind of lactobacillus or something that produces that B vitamin. They will be there in your gut, but... If there's not enough of them, they won't produce that. And then when they get to a certain concentration, just like we said we had to have seven of the ten committee members, they will all simultaneously switch on their genes for making B vitamins. And they will not do it unless there's enough of them. So quorum sensing is like really, really incredibly important, powerful concept to get your head around because all microbial communities, including the ones in our gut, use this to communicate. And because they then can alter gene expression in their population or in their host, that's why they're so powerful. Because bacteria are extraordinary. So it's density-dependent, coordinated behaviour. It occurs in all species of bacteria, archaea, fungi and viruses. So how do they communicate? Well, they produce a signal, a chemical signal. And this is the bit that you have to remember even if you forget everything else about it it's these signals that bacteria use that we can use to change the function of biological systems and the function of agricultural systems so these signals are called autoinducers that word is going to be unfortunately bandied around in the future just like regenerative agriculture has been bandied around and everyone will use it and they won't know what it means but an autoinducer is a signal that a microbe produces to talk to other microbes. And if those microbial signals are not there, then the soil cannot function as a living organism. And that's the problem that we see in modern agriculture today, that um, soils are not functioning as living beings, and they really are living beings. They should be. So the natural world is composed of interdependent communities of organisms. And as we heard even with the, the birch trees growing along the edge of the water and 
the insects being important to feed the fish. And so we have all these interdependencies and all these connections and there's really no such thing as an independent organism. I mean, we humans could not survive for probably even five minutes without all of the other things on this planet that we depend on, not only for our food, but for our oxygen. If we took all other life forms away, I guess it'd be like going to Mars or the moon or something, wouldn't it? So soil structure is incredibly important too. It's not just the nutrients that are in the plants. It's if they're building soil, like if we're putting carbon into the soil, we're building soil structure. And you can't buy that in a bag. That's my big beef about California, is why are there no plants being planted here that will be green over summer, that will keep soil biologically active and growing in summer? Because if it's dead all summer, it is always going to go backwards. And I can't believe that it always was dead over summer because our Mediterranean environments that are exactly the same as yours and many of them that were more severe are more severe than yours, especially here in Northern California. We have environments that have much hotter, drier summers than you have here. And at the time of European settlement, they were green, incredibly green. And they're not green now because we lost our warm season ground cover. So the carbon feeds the microbes and it also gives them uh, substrate to use to make polysaccharides and form these little microaggregates. And then the hyphae of the mycorrhizal fungi and also a lot of saprotrophic fungi that live around plant roots just pull all those particles together to make that macroaggregate. And inside that very specialised structure in soil, the microbes can work together to form humus, which is the holy grail for soil. It has very high cation exchange capacity, very high water holding capacity. It's incredibly important for soil structure and, of course, it's important for storing or sequestering atmospheric carbon because once it's in the form of humus, it's stable for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. Uh, if it's just labile carbon, it's going to go back to the atmosphere. So we want it to be non-labile. And humus is going to have about 60% carbon, 6-8% nitrogen and a little bit of phosphorus and sulphur. And if you add all those things together, it comes to about 70%. And the other 30% are the minerals in the soil, like iron. So it's an organo-mineral complex. It's formed in situ, cannot be extracted from soil. If you hear people talking about humic acids and fulvic acids, they're human artefacts of extraction methods using things like acid and alkaline extractions to make those acids. They don't occur naturally in the soil. So if we have a look at the humic molecule, we see it's something like this with... Uh, six chain or six carbon rings, the carbon in these rings like this, and then we've got oxygen and nitrogen and hydrogen and other things in there. But it's a very complex polymer. So why do you think that the microbes living around plant roots would go to all of the trouble to join all those different atoms together to form humic polymers? There's a lot of energy goes into that. When those carbon compounds, those sugars and things are coming out of plant roots, they could just use it for energy, multiply, and be done with it. Some of it they're using for energy, and some of it they're putting a lot of effort into joining all the different elements together to make humic molecules. Why would microbes bother to do that? There's a lot of hard work goes into making a structure like that. That's a very complex polymer, and they're very large. Humic polymers are very large. Like that's just a fraction of a humic polymer there would be thousands of different atoms in one humic polymer. Why would the microbes go to all that trouble? Well, they need quorum sensing to do it, so you have to have a certain number of microbes 
present before it will even happen, which means you need lots of exudates. So if a plant is producing lots of exudates and you get a quorum of microbes, once you have a quorum of microbes, they're able to do this work of joining all the different kinds of elements together to form humic molecules, but why would they? Why would they work together in that coordinated fashion to form humus around plant roots? So if the plant isn't actively photosynthesising, all the microbes around its roots are going to die. So if you were a microbe, would you not do something to change the environment or improve the environment so that that plant photosynthesises for longer? And if you were in a complex plant community, like let's go back to the prairies again, the prairies had warm season grasses, warm season broadleaves, cool season grasses, cool season broadleaves or forbs if you want to call them forbs, and somewhere between five and 700 different species. I was involved last year in a monitoring of a prairie in Oklahoma that's still in relatively pristine condition. We found 780 species of ground cover plant and that was typical for prairies. So we're in Oklahoma. It was just near the Noble Research Institute which is, you've got Oklahoma City about an hour north of that that was there. But there was a lot of good ranches around in that area and lots and lots of diversity and um, I, I spoke at the Grassfed Exchange in South Dakota last year, one of the other speakers who was there, but we all went on a bus tour to his ranch. And he had 2,000 plants, including the, that included the trees and the shrubs and the ground cover plants, but he had certainly over 1,000 ground cover plants. It's not unusual. Um, our Australian grasslands had 700 to 800 species in them. And I've been in um, meadows in England that were you know, being commercially used, like for dairies, dairy meadows, where they have said we have 200, over 200 grassland plants here in our meadows. So California has been drastically altered. And in fact, the grasses that I can see out there now, most of them are introduced, like they're not Californian grasses. So this humus-rich topsoil is a product. It doesn't just get there by itself. It's a product of photosynthesis and microbial resynthesis. But we've been told, um, or we haven't been told, but we've tried to replace in our ignorance, I suppose, and it's no one's fault. We've tried to replace that incredible biological activity that would go on around plant roots in a natural ecosystem with high analysis fertilisers. But high analysis fertilisers can't do any of the things that microbes can do for plants. And then the plants are put in a situation where they can't acquire the minerals and trace elements that they need for themselves, for their own immune function. And in the same way that human ecosystems or human metabolic pathways have been impacted by us not having the minerals and trace elements that we need. The effect on plants has been fairly similar, I suppose, in that plants now have increased susceptibility to pests and diseases. Every time I pick up a newspaper that has like an agricultural insert or something in it, I'm reading, oh, there's some new disease in citrus or there's some new disease in soybeans and and it's like, and sometimes there's not even a name for it. It'll be like all the experts are trying to figure out what's gone wrong with this kind of plant. It's not functioning as it should be. Almost every day there's some new thing that's going wrong in agriculture. And look at our, our own bodies. As I said, we have 80 already autoimmune disorders and now a whole lot of unnamed ones coming onto the scene. Um, it's because they just, they're not functioning effectively. And then what happens in the farming situation or the agricultural situation is that the farmer 
then has to use insecticides and fungicides because the plant is being attacked by all these things and you can't afford to lose crop if it's worth, you know, sometimes millions of dollars. That reduced farmers' profits and then we're adding all these unnecessary chemicals to the food chain. I just wanted to say a few uh, more little things here. One was about flowers, that we really do need more flowers in our systems. We're probably not going to be able to get the native flowers back into areas that have been hugely changed from what they were like at the 600 years ago, whatever number we decided on. But one thing you can do in your vegetable gardens, I'm sure quite a few of you grow veggies at home. This is Gabe Brown's vegetable garden. He grows three acres of vegetables by grazing the pastures right down really short several times so that he's um, more or less compromised the root systems on those grasses. And then he doesn't use any herbicide. He farms 5,000 acres, so he's got machinery that he can do this with, but he direct drills. Um, He puts... 20 different kinds of vegetables and 20 different kinds of flowers into the seed box, mixes up all the seed and then just drills it into the pasture and everything that comes up. It comes up so thick that there isn't any room for weeds. It's got so much diversity in it that you don't need any fertiliser. And here he's got, this is his warm season mix, he's got corn and squash and there will be tomatoes and cucumbers and zucchinis and a whole lot of other things in there and there will also be parsley and cilantro and every Sunday, um, Saturday or Sunday morning anywhere they take armfuls of stuff or truckloads of stuff to the farmer's market. He employs people to come and pick, probably starting at 5 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning or something on that day of the farmer's market, and they just pick whatever's ripe that day. So he doesn't need to employ anybody to remove weeds because there's no weeds to remove. He doesn't have to spend any money on fertilisers. It's just basically what he spent on the seed. He pays people to pick, and then he says there's people queued up for about two hours in the before the farmer's market starts because the vegetables all taste so great and he hasn't used their... um, People can come and see how he grows them and they know there's absolutely no chemicals being used on them. Also, some of the flowers you can eat and they're becoming more important now for culinary use. Certainly the cosmos, I know for sure you can eat that because I grow that in my own garden. I'm pretty sure you can eat the flowers of Coreopsis, but if you're not sure, you can Google it. If you put in edible flowers you'll find out what sorts of things you can eat. And I'm not sure whether that's a bachelor's button there or something, but you can eat those as well. So after he's been picking vegetables for a couple of months, I guess, and he figures it's getting to the end of the time, then he turns the cows in there and he says, you know, the growth rate of young animals is just incredible. They're putting on, you know, three or four pounds a day in weight because there's just so much variety and so much nutrition in those pastures and then after the cows have gone through then he puts the chickens in there and then he puts the pigs in there and they turn the whole thing over and then it's the soil is just incredibly rich and he said the pasture just grows like crazy next year you get these incredible pastures that grow because you've had the diversity of plants and the diversity of animals that have come through so that's one thing like even if if you've got a small scale vegetable garden even if it's only just a small area like this, put everything in together and put flowers in with your vegetables. So we need more flowers in all these different situations. But if you put prairie strips through your corn paddocks, you can have 10% of the area taken up with flowers and still produce the same yield as you would if you had 100% corn. And not only that, but you find that you can use less chemicals. And in fact, the people, as you can see with all the different flowers, people talk about all the birds, the butterflies and all the amazing variety of life that comes along with having all those flowers. And what a beautiful way to end this episode, imagining these biodiverse fields of flowers with pollinators and 
vegetables, and even fiber crops. Many of these flowers that Christine noted are also dye-producing plants, and we'll have a few links on the show notes about that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California on the traditional and ancestral territory of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo people. We invite you to learn more about our work and the concepts described here by visiting fibershed.org. There you can join our email newsletter to hear the latest updates or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Fibershed. And you can find more about Dr. Christine Jones on her website, www.amazingcarbon.com. That's all one word, www.amazingcarbon.com. And if you're looking to dive deeper into this work, definitely keep an eye out for conferences and events in the future where Christine will be presenting. Because as she mentioned throughout um, and in the top of the episode, she regularly travels around the world to conferences like the Grass-Fed Exchange and other ranching and agricultural convenings. You can visit our show notes directly at fibershed.org podcast, and we'll have links to some of these different topics that Christine brought up. And I wanted to share with you that we'll also be going deeper into soil health at the 2020 Fibershed Wool and Fine Fiber Symposium, including a panel specifically about pathways of water and soil. This year's symposium will be all online, a fully virtual event held November 12th through 14th, and ticketing information is online at fibershed.org symposia. That's S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A. And if you're listening to this after that event has passed, please head to that same webpage and look for the video recordings of the panels and presentations. It means so much to us that you're listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening, if you'll please leave us a rating and review, and even go ahead and share it on social media and let us know um, what your takeaways are. We love to hear what's resonating with you. The show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris who's a member of the Northern California Fibershed Producer Network. And as mentioned, special thanks to John Perulis from Bright Path Video in Marin County for recording the audio of Christine's talk and sharing initial edits with us. Let me tell you I love you. Let me tell you, let me tell you I love you.